0: So last week we completed a series on faith. Um, Andrew took us through uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and he took us focused on this verse, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so today, today we're doing exactly that. We're looking at Jesus and we're looking at an encounter that Jesus had with a man called Zacchaeus. So yeah, turn to, I don't actually know what the page in the church Bibles is. Anyone got one, five, four, four. Yeah. Um, So chapter 19 of Luke's gospel, uh, Luke was one of the people who wrote an account of Jesus' life. Um, He was a doctor, kind of lived just after um, Jesus was around, and uh, he kind of summarized what happened in in Jesus' ministry. And so this is just one encounter from, from his account. So I'm going to read it to us now. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So at the centre of this short story, really, is the Christian idea of the grace of God. Something we were just singing about and praying about. In short, that the idea that God welcomes sinners. That he loves us despite our sin and rejection of him. And I'll go on to unpack this in the, in the um, as we kind of go through the passage. But I really want to start by saying that this central truth is relevant to a number of groups of, of people here today. So there'll be some here today who... Um, Maybe you've kind of heard about Christianity or encountering it um, for the first time, and um, kind of popularly in London, if you talk to the average person and say, "What is Christianity?" they might say, "Well, Christianity is basically about being a good person, about loving your neighbor as yourself." And if you're coming here with that assumption, then I think this story is going to challenge that, And actually said there's something a far more um, powerful truth at the center um, of Christianity. Um, There'll be some who've come here today who've kind of written themselves off, who's saying, actually, I'm not a Christian. I could never be a Christian because the way I've lived my life or the way I I live my life at the moment. And um, again, I think this story will challenge that assumption. And then there's a third group here who are um, Christians who maybe are familiar with this truth, but actually this has a potential to become stale, to kind of not really bring the joy with it that it that it might have done at the beginning when we first heard this truth about grace. So it's important that we look again at this truth and unpack the implications for us. Okay, so let's turn to this story then. So Jesus is coming into Jericho. Jericho is kind of quite a uh, a bustling town. It's on the way to Jerusalem, so kind of a a, a big trading post. And there are crowds around Jesus. Maybe they're lining the streets. Remember, we're kind of chapter 19 of Luke's gospel. So his ministry has been going on for quite a while now. He's, he's attracted attention. There's probably people who have heard about his miracles, seen him performing healing, seeing people's lives transformed. So he's, he's got, getting quite a following of people. He's um, getting quite, quite a lot of interest as he goes around uh, Jericho. But among the crowd, Luke draws our attention to one man specifically, Zacchaeus. So who is this man, Zacchaeus? Well, Zacchaeus is a tax collector. In fact, he's the chief tax collector. Being the chief tax collector, that really tells us three things about him. One, that he's rich, which it goes on to say. Two, that he's corrupt or immoral. And the third thing is that he's unpopular, actually probably hated is more appropriate. So to understand this, you have to understand uh, what it meant to collect taxes for the Roman Empire. Essentially, um, the Romans would set really oppressive taxes to their colonies, to their kind of the territories that they occupied. And uh, this was their kind of their way of extracting wealth from the, um, the territories that they, they occupied. And they would basically say to their tax collectors, you need to collect so much and you can collect on top of that X amount and everything that you collect above what uh, we're owed, you can keep for yourself. And this, these tax collectors would have a kind of Roman guard um, around them, protecting them. So they were essentially professional extortionists. They were basically given a remit by Rome, go and get the money for us, and then keep everything on top of what you collect, on top of what we're owed for yourself. So they became wealthy um, on the backs of their own people, essentially. They became rich by um, taking money from their own people. Um, and this guy, Zacchaeus, is in charge of the whole system. He's the chief tax collector. So at the head of that system, he would undoubtedly have been one of the wealthiest and one of the most hated. Uh, you can see it in the passage in a few ways how, uh, how he was popularly received or thought of. Um, one way, uh, after Jesus uh, invites himself round to his house, uh, the crowd describe him as a sinner. So they clearly think of him as an immoral man, as someone who doesn't obey God's law. Secondly, in fact, um, throughout the Gospels, uh, we see Jesus going and eating with, with people like Zacchaeus, tax collectors and other uh, people like prostitutes. And um, people are surprised. They're saying, why are you eating with them? So he's not just immoral, but he's also someone you wouldn't even eat with. Kind of an outcast from the rest of um, the Jewish people. Um, so just in the way kind of Zacchaeus has, has uh, betrayed his own people, he's collaborating with the Roman Empire. So he was kind of an outcast in turn, he, and they, they wouldn't expect to, to eat with him. Um, and thirdly, you can see the crowd won't even let him through to see Jesus. He's a short guy, so he's not going to get in anyone's way. And actually, um, he can't even kind of go into the crowd to see Jesus. He has to go and climb a tree um, to see Jesus. So I think if you're thinking of a modern equivalent, do you remember the uh, recession in, uh, in 2009, the credit crunch? And do you remember at the time there was a lot of public anger towards uh, bankers, towards those in the financial sector? Um, at the time, um, the narrative goes basically that these bankers had caused the recession by basically they'd been really greedy and they'd, and they'd just got greedier and greedier, and they'd caused the financial system to collapse. And so there was a recession, people lost their jobs, people's lives were um, affected, and people were really angry with bankers because they said, your greed has caused our suffering, effectively. Um, There was the Occupy Wall Street movement. My sister-in-law works for a bank, and she said she kind of didn't really want to tell people that she worked for a bank. So there was that kind of public... um, anger towards bankers and that's a little bit a glimpse of how people would have felt towards Zacchaeus um, he's almost like a popular figure of of hatred of scorn you know like one of those people that people just love to kind of hate a little bit like the way people in London talk about Donald Trump or Nigel Farage yeah that's, that's yeah that's Nigel Farage that's Donald Trump kind of people enjoy hating him a little bit so um that's kind of that's kind of Zacchaeus really he's a greedy little man who everyone hates um Okay, so what happens next then? So Jesus comes into Jericho, and he's um, surrounded by these crowds. And Zacchaeus is up ahead um, in this in the sycamore tree, in, in the middle of the sycamore tree. It's almost like a slightly bizarre scene, almost. You know, you can imagine this this prominent guy, people have heard of, and he's just in a tree uh, waiting for Jesus. It's like you um, just kind of can't really imagine like Rupert Murdoch or a prominent politician, as some big dignitary comes into town, and they're climbing the tree and. I think that kind of shows a bit of the isolation that he's feeling. Um, So as Jesus is coming up, um, perhaps people are thinking he's going to rebuke Zacchaeus. Maybe he's just going to ignore him. But of all the people in the crowd, against all the odds, Jesus stops by the tree, looks up and says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. It's as if Jesus has singled out and chosen the most notorious sinner to say, I'm coming to your house today. And we have to see the the controversy that this is in what he's doing here. To eat with someone in in this kind of culture is a kind of intimate experience. It's more than just kind of, you know, going out for a coffee with someone. It's, it, it says it conveys friendship and fellowship and kind of almost like an honour. You'd be honoured to have someone at your house and... and um, and the crowd's reaction is helpful to us in to kind of understand the controversy here. They're surprised and angry that Jesus would um, spend time with him. It says, um, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest at the house of a man who is a sinner. They're grumbling because they can't understand it. How could Jesus eat with this man? How could he share a meal with him? Um, kind of, I don't know if you remember, a few years ago, um, Pope Benedict visited... I think London, a number of places, came on a visit. And um, can you imagine the scene of um, kind of the MAL, uh, you know, near, near Buckingham Palace? Uh, the Pope's coming to visit London. You can imagine um, kind of there'll be nuns and priests there, maybe um, school teachers, nurses, school children, you know, all the great and the good are lined up to see the Pope. And then just in the corner, this is a fictional scene, you can imagine, um, just in the corner, there's a guy who. Who people know is famous for having made his money by bankrupting charities and uh, kind of good, worthy institutions like schools. And, uh, and, the, and the Pope kind of, you know, maybe gestures to the people, but the one person he cho- chooses to go and speak to and even to go and spend time with is this guy with a really seedy reputation. People would be surprised, they'd be shocked, they'd even be angry. Why is the Pope going to visit this guy when all these other worthy people are here? So why does Jesus go and eat with Zacchaeus? What's motivating him to say, I must stay at your house today? And I think the answer to that question is actually in this passage, in verse 10. Um, We'll come back and look at exactly what happens when Jesus uh, goes to spend time with Zacchaeus. Um, But at the end of the encounter, Jesus gives us his reason for being here. It says, this is what Jesus says, For the Son of Man, that's him describing himself, came to seek and save the lost. So what does it mean that Jesus came to seek and save the lost? In chapter 15, Jesus tells a story um, to actually explain this. Um, in response to a similar situation, he's having a, another meal with some tax collectors and some um, sinners, I think it is. Um, and, and, and he's challenged. People are kind of, again, angry at what he's doing. And so um, this is the story that he tells to explain why. So this is chapter 15, verse 1 to 7. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So in this story, we've kind of got a picture, in this parable that Jesus tells, we've got a picture of a shepherd who has 100 sheep. And he's got 99, are all safe. Um, but one sheep um, he's lost he's lost his sheep and he goes after that one sheep to go and find his lost sheep so the lost sheep in this picture are the people who are um, these the people who he's spending time with the sinners and the tax collectors these people are lost because they're not in relationship with God they're not worshiping God they're not living in obedience to him so just as the, the shepherd wants to be reunited with his lost sheep, so God wants to be reconciled with his lost people. In the story, the shepherd is pursuing what he's lost. He's searching for it. He desires it. You can, you can see that by his reaction when he gets the lost sheep. He's rejoicing. He even goes and like tells all the people that he's found his lost sheep. So he's, he's clearly really grateful to have it and, and, and really, um, really wants that sheep. Um. I know most of us don't have any sheep, so maybe the metaphor is slightly lost on us. Uh, perhaps the modern equivalent would be if we lost our iPhone or our laptop with all our kind of data and work and all the things that are really valuable to us. Um, you know, we would spend hours, perhaps days, weeks looking for it. I mean, I I, I was thinking the the most drastic version of this. If you're a a parent and you had a child and, you know, we were out in Waterloo in the South Bank enjoying ourselves, as we often do as a church in the afternoon on a Sunday, and you lost your child in the crowd, you would spend days, weeks, months. I mean, think about the the parents of Madeleine McCann, uh, years looking for that child. So, Uh, Your search, your pursuit of something um, shows its value to you, shows how precious it is to you. So Jesus, in this story that he tells about the, uh, the shepherd and the lost sheep and in his encounter with Zacchaeus, is showing us in his pursuit of these people, their preciousness to him and his desire to be reconciled with them. See, reconciliation is Jesus' goal. Just as the shepherd desires to have his sheep back in the flock, Jesus desires that Zacchaeus would be reconciled to God. No longer would he be living his life apart from God, uh, rejecting him, but obeying and worshipping him and enjoying God for eternity. Now, everyone needs to hear themselves in this story. Either you're a lost sheep today, or you're someone who isn't, in relationship with God, isn't living your life um, in response to God, um, and you're waiting to be reconciled with your shepherd, or you once were. Either way, you need to hear the value, the importance that the Father puts on having you in his flock. You are desired, pursued, and welcomed by Jesus. Now, um, don't hear what it's not saying. I know there's kind of a language of in this passage of kind of, there are these people over here who are sinners, and there are these other people, but actually there aren't two categories of people. Um, The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when it's talking about sinners, it's talking about all of us. Um, Ultimately, this is a question of the character of God. At the heart of who he is, God is God of love. This love means that he welcomes sinners. In fact, he doesn't just welcome sinners, he pursues them. This picture in Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus is like an extreme picture to show us that even this guy, the worst of the worst, is not beyond God's love and welcome. And ultimately, these two pictures, and there are many more in the Gospels, are actually pictures in themselves of the ultimate picture, the ultimate um, story, as it were, which is the whole Gospel, which is the story of God's um, pursuit and reconciliation um, that he makes through Jesus. So um, the, I'm going to talk about the whole gospel. I talk, for example, of Luke's gospel. You know, the, the, the story in Luke's gospel is of Jesus, who is before the gospel um, in heaven, God the Father, and he chooses to humble himself by coming down, being made, uh, becoming a man. Uh, you know, think about this: the King of the Universe choosing to humble himself to the point where he needs his bottom wiped uh, by his mum as he's growing up. to um, so the story of God humbling himself, and then pursuing us to the point where, on the cross, he achieves this reconciliation with us. So this is the same story, actually, of God seeking us, God pursuing us, God loving us, and ultimately God reconciling us to himself. See, on the cross, um, an exchange takes place, where Jesus, is, um, Jesus dies on this cross, and he takes on him the sins of the world, and he, in turn, um, exchanges that for his righteousness for us. So that for those of us who believe, who trust him um, for his uh, sacrifice, we receive this righteousness and we are, for- we are forgiven by God, making it possible that we can indeed be reconciled to God. Ultimately, this says, this whole story, this whole narrative says we, humanity, are welcome, pursued, and have the potential to be saved into an everlasting relationship with God. This is what the Bible describes as the one aspect of what is the gospel, the unmerited gift of God, not based on anything of what we've done, and we certainly don't deserve it. And this gospel, this good news, is good news, again, for a number of groups of people here. It's good news for those of you who are coming who aren't Christians and saying, I could never be a Christian because of how I've lived or what, I've, or what I'm doing now. Because it says you're not beyond the grace of God. Actually, God has made a way for you to be forgiven and enter into relationship with him. Uh, for a way for you to respond to, um, to know God. Um, secondly, it's um, good news for those of you who are Christians who know this truth, but actually... We're struggling with self-criticism. We're struggling with, with... And we all do this. We all are um, so aware of our failings, aware of our brokenness. And actually, this is great news to remind us that we are welcomed by God, that we are reconciled with him. Um, let this grace be a kind of pleasing balm to you as you hear it. Um, I think it's also good news because there may be people who we've written off, maybe people who we've said, actually, I, those people are, are not... Um, They could never become a Christian. They're they're so far from God. Um, And actually, this message is one that actually they're not beyond the grace of God, that it's possible that their lives could be transformed just like Zacchaeus. So we've heard this this good news. We've heard what Jesus is is giving us a picture of in this encounter with Zacchaeus. But the logical question, in fact, is what is our response to this good news? How do we respond to this encounter with Jesus? Um, and I think in this story we see two responses. We see the response of the crowd, who, yeah, they're interested in Jesus, but they're not they actually kind of they're not their lives are not transformed by the end of the story. But we also see a second type of response, which is Zacchaeus' response, which is very different. And in fact, I think Zacchaeus' response is like a model for us of how we can respond to this same message of good news. So there are three things that characterize Zacchaeus' response: joy. Uh, repentance and obedience, and gratitude and worship. And I'm going to go through and unpack each of those. And as, as we unpack those, let's ask ourselves, is, is our response to Jesus like Zacchaeus's? So, joy. Zacchaeus's first response to Jesus's invitation or kind of uh, command to Zacchaeus that he was going to come around his house is joy. In verse six, after Jesus says to him, I'm coming around your house tonight, he says, so he hur- it says, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus is clearly touched to have been welcomed um, by Jesus. He's enthusiastic to receive him, so he hurries down the tree and he joyfully um, welcomes Jesus to his home, presumably. Um, so too for us, as we understand the depth of God's love, the implications of being included in His family, and consider for a moment the future that awaits us of worshiping and enjoying God for eternity. That will and should fill our hearts with joy. This is the experience of the saints, uh, the people who followed God throughout the ages. In uh, Psalm 4:7, this is what um, the psalmist says: "You have put more joy in my heart than they have with their grain and wine abound." So, basically, saying. Um, I may have misread that. But he's basically saying, um, you bring more joy to me than a kind of good meal and a glass of wine. Um, in Psalm 6, 7, he's talking about himself in the third person. But he says, you make him blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. In uh, 1 Peter one eight, Peter tells the church that they believe in him, Jesus, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Finally, Paul, the early Christian apostle, writes to the Philippian church that it is his task to continue with them, and this, for, for, for this purpose, for your progress and joy in the faith. So the outworking of Paul's ministry in the Philippian church, or his, in his letter to them, is to be faith and joy. So joy is kind of the expected outworking of a relationship with God. The, um, it's the expected experience of the psalmist, and it's the desired outcome for Paul and Peter in the writing to the church. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. Christians... Um, I'm not saying that Christians should kind of just summon up joy or just kind of walk around with permanent uh, fake smiles or that Christians will never struggle with depression or Christians will never be sad. Um, We don't have things that make us sad. Um, Of course, Christians throughout the ages have um, struggle with things like depression. And we're humans. We have emotions. We go up and down. But this joy is a gift from God in response to the gospel. After all, joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And we do have a responsibility to cultivate joy, or as John Piper puts it, to fight for joy, primarily by reminding ourselves of this glorious truth of the gospel, So it's almost like, um, if you can imagine the gospel like a jewel with many different sides. We, we might look to one side today, like the idea that we are reconciled to God. But there are lots of different sides to that, to that diamond, to that jewel. And as we kind of understand the different sides, as we immerse ourselves in that truth and that becomes real to us, then that will bring joy in our lives. So different ways this might happen. Um, this might include embracing the truth of our forgiveness. Specifically choosing, uh, you know when you feel down about yourself, kind of, oh, I'm just rubbish, I'm really, I'm really suck at the moment. Um, choosing not to embrace that kind of self-pity and condemnation, but instead to remind yourself, to preach to yourself the truth that you have been forgiven. It could involve meditating on scripture, finding specific truths and promises that bring you joy, and returning to those promises. This um, supernatural joy, this response to the gospel, is actually a really tremendous weapon against sin. Um, consider it for a moment. You've had a really hard day, and maybe people have been really critical of you at work or um, uh, where you're studying. And um, you come home, you're alone, you're not really around other people. Um, maybe you feel like you need to pick yourself up. And some of us might kind of develop these kind of sinful habits, things like pornography or maybe like a... Obviously, we all eat food, but there's a way we can kind of develop, develop a kind of dependence on it that we kind of look to it to make us feel better. And in those times when you're looking at something like pornography or, or, or something else that, will, that you think that will, make, that will lift me up, if instead you can remember that actually there is a greater joy... Available in God, knowing that his good news about um, that we are reconciled with him can bring you even a greater joy. And spending time with him, reminding yourself of that truth, asking God to fill you with his Holy Spirit and to give you that supernatural joy is the, the best fight, the best uh, weapon against something like uh, the temptation to sin. So that's joy. That's a mark of how Zacchaeus responds. And that's a mark of how we're called to respond um, how we can respond to this. Uh, Good news. The second mark of a true response to the gospel is repentance. We see in this story that Zacchaeus experiences this joy. He perhaps gratitude that Jesus would eat with him. Perhaps subconsciously he's starting to understand the gospel that he's welcomed by God despite his many sins. What do we see next? So we pick up the story of verse eight. Um, Potentially, I I like to think maybe between verse seven and eight that he's he's already they've had the meal. So Zacchaeus is kind of standing up at the end of the meal. And this is what he says. Um, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This is a dramatic about turn. For a man who spent his career um, pursuing wealth at the cost of friendships, at the cost of the acceptance of his community, he's willing to give up half of everything he owns straight away. And perhaps, or probably more than that, because he's going to give back four times Everything he's defrauded from other people. So he's willing to give up something that has clearly been precious to him. Behind this gesture, this staggering act, I would say, must be the heart of repentance. Jesus' offer of forgiveness and pursuit of sinners comes with the command to reorder one's life, to recognize him and to worship him. This change of direction that follows from an understanding of the gospel, and uh, this change of direction from a life of of ignoring God to a life of worship and obedience to God, is what we call repentance. Now, this all starts from the recognition that the very purpose of all creation, of all humankind, is to worship and enjoy God forever. And... um, kind of along the lines of what we were praying um, earlier. But in Psalm uh, 67, um, this is what the psalmist says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So when we understand that our purpose as human beings is to worship God and to live our lives in obedience to him, then we can understand the essence of sin is not just doing certain things. It's actually um, living our lives without considering God, without um, kind of due consideration to who God is. Romans 1 puts it like this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we see sin as a, a position, an orientation away from God, a desire to control our lives and a worship of other things. So when we understand this, we see that repentance is not just about stopping things, but it's this change of orientation from ignoring God to worshipping God, from wanting to be in control to giving control to God, for living for our goals or for other people's goals, but instead for living for God's purposes. This is what we see in Zacchaeus in this story. Now sometimes, um, I think this is worth dwelling on for a moment, sometimes Christians have, um, have used the language of grace to say basically this isn't important. To basically say, there's grace, so it doesn't matter what we do or how we live, that we, that we choose to, to live our lives in, in um, obedience to God. And it is true that we have received forgiveness, both for what we've done and what we will do, that Jesus has dealt with our sin on the cross. But it does matter how we live. Our lives are not our own anymore, and we've surrendered control to God. We're called to live in obedience to him. What's more, after we've received salvation, we experience a new power over sin. We're no longer slaves to sin, and actually, by God's grace, we can now defeat sin in our lives, now live a different way to how we used to. But I guess the question, looking at this story, if you're, particularly if you're looking at this story for the first time, is what if you don't have repentance? What if you haven't come to a place of wanting to repent? At the heart of repentance is a humility a recognition of your own sinfulness. We can see that in Zacchaeus, in his declaration, in the recognition of what he's done and how he's treated people. That's implicit in what he's choosing to do. But in a chapter before, in Luke 18, Jesus tells us a story of, um, of two men. And in that story, gives us a picture of what repentance looks like. So I'm just gonna read that to you. It's a story of a religious leader and a, um, and a tax collector. Another tax collector coming into God, uh, coming to the temple to worship. He also told, and this is from chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple, into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. So in this passage, we've got a picture of two different responses. And one, the tax collector, is a heart of repentance. He recognises his flaws, his brokenness. And the other, this religious leader, doesn't. He's the opposite approach. He still thanks God that he's not sinful like him. He even compares himself um, positively to the tax collector. So we've got a picture of what repentance looks like. And the essence of this story, the reason why Jesus tells this story is to challenge the people who trust in their own righteousness, those people who believe that they are good people. It says if you can't see your own sin, if you can't see your own brokenness, then you won't come to a place of repentance like this religious leader. And if you can't come to a place of repentance then you won't be right with God. One man walked away justified with God, the tax collector, the sinful man who was repentant, not the religious leader who wasn't. This is a sobering thought, a warning for many of us, as most of us, most of the time, think of ourselves as pretty good people. We haven't broken any laws, we kind of live in line with the norms of society, and we can always find people who are worse than us, like this religious leader in this passage. So maybe the thing to do, if you're struggling to, to say, look, I don't really feel repentant, is to turn our eyes Godward again. If we compare ourselves to other people, we might be able to justify ourselves. But if we look to Jesus, if we look to his perfect example, we look to his incredible mercy, his grace, his love, his sacrifice, both in this encounter and throughout the Gospels, we'll recognize our own sinfulness in comparison, our own imperfections compared to the one who is perfect and never sinned. So that's repentance then. That's the second response that this gospel required. And the third part of Zacchaeus's response is gratitude and worship. We see his worship in the fact that he calls Jesus Lord. And implicit in this worship is a faith, is a, a trust that Jesus is who he says he is. That he um, recognises him, this faith. But this gratitude is more subtle. Zacchaeus gives this money away. And, and many people would look at that and say, well, that's just kind of him uh, being obedient to God now because he's starting to fulfill the Jewish law. Of, um... But actually, what Zacchaeus gives away, the generosity that he shows, show that it's more than just him now starting to live by the law. It's actually wholehearted gratitude to God. So the law required 10% of what you give to be given away. Zacchaeus gives 50%. The law required that you return to people what you've defrauded, plus 25%. Zacchaeus gave back four times, times—that's essentially 400%. So Zacchaeus has shown outrageous generosity. It's more than just law obedience, more than just redressing the wrongs. It's more than just repentance. It's gratitude for Jesus' outrageous grace. This gratitude, this uh, thankfulness to God is a natural response to the gospel, when we meditate and we understand what God has done for us, we will be grateful. And then what we do with our money and our time, our resources, what we do with our lives is a reflection of that gratitude. So you might say, I can't believe that I've been welcomed into God's family. I can't believe that I've been reconciled with God. I want other people to hear this incredible news that they can be reconciled with God. So I'm going to give money to the church and to the mission to help more people hear about Jesus. Or you might say, I'm so grateful that Jesus has shown me uh, his incredible love. I want to show other people that same love. So I'm going to volunteer in a homeless shelter um, showing that love to Jesus. Our Christian lives are lived in response to this generosity that God has shown us. It's not as a way of paying back God, because of course we could never pay God back for the generosity that he's shown, but out of the overflow of the heart a natural outworking of the gratitude that we all um, feel in response to this good news. Now I can't mandate you, I can't say, okay everyone, go and do that as a result, because that would defeat the whole point of what I'm saying. But instead I just want to challenge you to ask the question, Are there ways in your life that you could respond as a way of reflecting that gratitude, if you do indeed feel that gratitude to God? So, once we've responded like Zacchaeus, once we've understood the gospel, once we've um, experienced joy, once we've repented and we're living in worship and gratitude to him, are there any other implications for Zacchaeus' story, for for Christians particularly? Two things one, to seek and save the lost. Throughout the Gospels, we see jesus commitment to his mission of pursuing the lost, of, of proclaiming this welcome to those people who don 't know God, and as followers of Jesus, we model our lives on him, we get the privilege of being involved in continuing this mission, and it 's an active mission it 's not something that one that we just wait for it to happen to us. Jesus was active in pursuing the lost, and so we too are active in pursuing them, called out to go out and pursue them, um, kind of with him, because he's obviously filling us with his Holy Spirit as we do it. It's easy for us as Christians sometimes to spend all our time with other Christians, to spend our time in the church only, but actually, my question to you is, who are the non-Christians you're spending time with? Who are the people that you could spend time with? Who are the lost that you could pursue, essentially, as we look at Jesus' example. And as we see this glorious gospel and the power that it has to change lives, let that grow that desire in us to share it with others. This is so worthy of sharing. The last thing I think this story teaches us is to expect transformation. As we understand the gospel more and more, it doesn't just give us joy, it doesn't just give us gratitude, but it changes our motivations and our deepest desires. I'll give you two examples of this. So first, um, my example, I suppose. Um, I think probably from when I was a a young person, I really wanted success in life. Success was what I lived for. Um, I wanted to be successful primarily because I wanted people to like me. I thought if I'm really successful, then people will think well of me and they'll like me. And um, actually, as I understand the gospel, as I understand this good news that Jesus loves me, and reconciles me into his family, it changes my desire for success. Because I don't need to pursue success to get the approval of other people because I'm already welcomed by God. Now, this is not something that... Now, in one sense, it happened overnight. You know, a little bit like Zacchaeus, some big desires changed in my life. In a short period of time, I suddenly stopped doing things, I gave up activities, and I could. my friends around me could say, wow, you really, you've changed. Uh, You don't desire success. They wouldn't have put it like that, but but that's what essentially they were seeing. On the other hand, this has been an ongoing journey for the last eight years of following Jesus. There's a gradual change. As As I understand the gospel more, as I apply it in different areas of my life, then he changes the way I approach something like this, the desire for success. And so our Christian life is a life of letting the gospel Um, permeate or percolate through the rocks of our lives and influence all of our attitudes, all of our desires. Um, Another example, in this passage, Zacchaeus, he desires wealth. Now, often people who desire money don't just desire money for its own sake. They desire money, for one example, they might desire money because it gives them control over their own life. You know, if I've got money, then if something bad happens, then I've got control. I can do different things. If I lose my job, I can, I'm okay. Um, But actually, as we understand the gospel, we understand God's love and his promise to uh, protect us and take care of us. um, The more we trust him, the more we say, actually, I don't need this money because I'm already um, protected by God. Um, He already knows my best interests and has my best interests at heart. So that's another example of how the gospel can transform our attitudes and our desires. And this is the kind of ongoing work that perhaps we don't see in Zacchaeus in this story, but I think we see in our lives as we continue. So I want to encourage you as Christians, if you're a Christian here, to expect that transformation, to ask God for that continuing change in your life. So the final thing I want to leave us with then is that the gospel demands a response. If you are here, you're not a Christian, um, but you understand that God desires to be reconciled with you, that you desire to repent and to live your life for him and to turn to follow him, um, that it maybe brings joy to you to know that God loves you and wants to know you, then I just encourage you to, to respond like Zacchaeus and to turn around and to, um, well, I'd love to pray with you afterwards, basically, um, and help you on that journey. And I'm sure there's, there's a number of us who'd like to do that.